If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds. And while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The Glass Noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 99 of Confessions of a Marketer, we're looking back for marketing wisdom. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer, this time on episode 99. We're taking a look back at some of the wisdom our guests have shared over the past two years. Coming up in the weeks ahead, we'll have Steve Rondazzo on experiences, David C. Baker on building an agency, Carmen Perry on the biggest challenges for marketers, plus we'll have Rich Lyons on marketing the holidays, John McDonald on conversion, and lots more. And next time, we're all about clients with Lindsay Pattison, Chief Client Officer of WPP, in Episode 100, a great discussion that I can't wait for you to hear. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you've fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. All right, on to today's episode. I've had some brainy people on this show. And in this episode, I pulled together a number of the smart people into one package. I'll feature Tony Temple. Tony Riddell, Duncan Chapel, Jacques Van Niekerk, and L. Wolf. Tony Temple, my old friend and first guest, says a good brand is about belief, believing in what you're doing. Let's listen to him. Don't believe in what you're doing. Nobody's going to believe you. So if you believe you can make uh, a spanner better than everybody else by changing the grip on the handle, then do that and tell them about that. Don't tell them about every other component in the spanner. Just tell them about the bit that you do that makes it better for them. Humanize it. Communicate with them in a human way, with candor, with honesty, and with as few words as possible. If sales are sliding, if your salespeople are telling you, we've got a problem, nobody knows who we are. These are the common problems that bubble up within corporations. Once you start to listen to those conversations, then you realize you've got a problem and then you have to have somebody in to help you. If you go to a design agency, they'll give you a a new color and a new font and, and that'll be great for them. Will it be great for you? I don't know. I think 
when you're actually trying to move the dial, you have to look at your brand. You have to really think about who you are, what you are, and what you're doing. That means you have to talk to the people within the business because the business is actually made up. It's, it's, it's an organism made up of lots of people that then come together to make it be, to make the thing. So you have to speak to them because they've all, they've all got a different, slightly different take on it. But if you can get some sort of consensus on why your thing is great and why you do it and who you do it for, then you're in a good place. Only when you listen to the people right down at the bottom will you get the people listening right at the top and everywhere in between. So it's a broad conversation you have to have. So it's kind of top down and bottom up at the same time. Absolutely. You, I mean, you can't, you can't just apply a brand. It's not a badge. It's what the collective mean, represent and believe. And it only works if you do that. If you do that, you'll get the buy-in of the people. You'll get enthusiasm. You'll get uh, corporate messaging that actually means something that people can use when they're at a dinner party or at a barbecue. You know, you'll get one voice. You'll get a company that's connected. And those are the companies that succeed. So what companies in the B2B area actually do this well? Almost none of them. <laughs> um, I knew I knew the answer to that somehow. And I, I, it's it's changing. It's changing, but it, it's changing at, at glacial pace. A glacial pace. So where can we look for lessons? To one of my first loves, radio. Another Tony. This one, Tony Rudell, tells us why. The beauty of radio is. I mean, I used to have this discussion with friends, and I would say to them, if you had a choice between picking the more difficult task of doing play-by-play of a baseball game on radio or doing play-by-play of a baseball game on TV, which one is more difficult? Mm -hmm. And everyone invariably says radio is more difficult, and they're wrong. And the reason they're wrong is very simple. Television, the picture already exists, so you don't have to paint the picture you have to fill in the blanks on the picture that the other people aren't seeing. Mm-hmm. In radio, your task is to paint the whole picture. Right. Because there is no visual. The beauty of that, though, when it's done right, and that's where conciseness and... Pre- I, conciseness actually is a word that bothers me. The word that I prefer is precision. Yeah. There's precision communication. And... You know, I would say to students who would write, you know, when I taught, and I, they would use the word um, exciting. I said, well, that doesn't tell me anything. Your exciting may not be my exciting. Right. Or they'd say, it's a, you know, it's, it's the green grass. Well, okay, that gives me an image, but it's green doesn't give me an image because uh, your green may not be my green. And so the challenge is to be not as always not yes concise is always a good thing because it saves time and it it usually leads to greater clarity but precision is really the term i look for because when you have precision in communication you know the word choice game it just changes things so dramatically i mean when i write and i you know i've spent a good part of my career doing nothing but writing the loneliest kind of communication in the world because you spend you spend months writing something and then you know, editors work on it and a publisher publishes it and then you never see the reaction of the people reading it, which is just the most frustrating thing in the world. But Right, you just see the edits. <laughs> you just see the edits, which make me crazy anyway. 
But when I see a, a document that I've written or some book I've written or whatever it might be, and and I look at the language, I always play the game with myself. If I read it today, how would I change the language? Right. And one of the things I used to teach clients and students as well is word choice. Yeah. The more precise you are with your word choice, the the more you can do in the shorter space. So that does lead to your it's a it's a process, I guess. It's it's precision it's choice leading to precision of choice leading to concision and then the ultimate phrase. We had a client once and the problem they had is they had too many offerings and it wasn't a problem for them. It was actually the basis of their success. They had a great number of offerings and they had great numbers of audiences. And the problem was how do you boil that down to a message that's shorter than 19 paragraphs, which is what their corporate descriptor was. Well, I was terrible at math, but the only thing I remember from algebra was the term LCD, the least common denominator or lowest common denominator. And in writing, you sometimes need to default to the LCD, Mm -hmm. the lowest common denominator. So we ended up with this client, which was all things to many people, or many things to all people, depending on how you looked at it, calling it your source. Right. And just leaving it at that, because then you could put almost anything after that. Your source for blah, 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 blah. Right. Your source for blah, 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 blue. And so that was, that's a, I think, an example of being precise and yet being as broad as you can. Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting. It's, it's certainly a lot better than 19 paragraphs, right? Yeah, well, this is the thing. You look at some of these corporations with their descriptors, you know, and they, well, we do this, and we do this, and then we do this. Oh, and by the way, we can do this, and then we do this, and then by the time you're in the ninth, we do this, you want to go, okay, so you don't do anything well. You do a lot of stuff in a mediocre way, and that's the signal that that sends. So which brings me to the next level of communication, which is not so much the word choice and phrasing, but the hidden signals. And this is something I spent a lot of time on when I consulted. Corporations and clients often don't see their hidden communication, the hidden flaws in their communication. That's what a good consultant, I think, can do, is you look at it and you go, what is, you know, what is this? What is your inability to articulate concisely or articulate precisely doing to you? And does that become the message, therefore? Right. So does the, does the, you know, we used to talk about the medium and the message. Does the message trump the medium or does the medium trump the message? In this case, I used to say to clients, does your, is your message just a mess? <laughs> and is that becoming message? So your mess becomes your message, and that's the problem. Your mess becomes your message. Definitely something to avoid. One other thing to avoid? A walled garden between PR and analyst relations. Duncan Chappell, the world's foremost expert on analyst relations, joined me to dig into how AR budgets are siloed from PR. I think one of the frustrating things to public relations managers, both in-house and and in agencies, is that they know that analyst relations budgets exist. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe it's a little bit like Bigfoot, <laughs> uh, but they, they they know that the budgets are out there. And in fact, one of the analyst firms, IDC, has been following that for us. So every year they publish a tech marketing tracker 
that looks at the spend for the whole range of marketing activities. And obviously, almost half of that goes on advertising and events. Year after year, I hear public relations managers say, well, we know, you know, 3.7% of the, of the total pot goes on, on public relations. 1.9%, so a little bit more than half of that goes on analyst relations, but we can't see it. It's not available to us. And often analyst relations, it's a really substantial part of tech marketing, but it's often siloed and isolated geographically. Often it's very centralized in the headquarters. So it's not really accessible. It's not accessible to PR managers because of that. When PR managers are hiring PR agencies, normally they don't have the funds or the responsibility for analyst relations. And that means that even if PR agencies think that they're able to do analyst relations, Actually, PR managers either don't have the money to do that, or if they do have the money, it's like a discretionary, nice to have that they're not really being held accountable to. It's the kind of expenditure where the agency and the client have to work together to make a business case to have these funds made available. So that is really problematic because so many companies keep responsibility for public relations away from media relations. And that means that often there's just very little awareness about, about how to do it, how to generate public relations that really benefits the business. And I have to say here in Europe, that is even more profound because with, with a few exceptions, uh, Israel is a very good example of success, but generally outside the United States, tech firms are coming to analyst relations very late. So that average of 1.9% of the whole tech marketing spend going on analyst relations, that might be a little bit higher for US-based organizations, especially larger organizations that might have dozens and dozens of people working on analyst relations and more resource in their network. But then it might be a little bit less than 1.9% for companies headquartered outside the United States. Ah, analyst relations, an ongoing issue for firms and another ongoing issue, the rise in importance of Amazon to marketers. Frequent guest on Confessions of a Marketer, Jacques Van Niekerk, has an interesting take on Amazon and its approach to advertising from its AWS perch. Amazon, without really trying, before they knew it, became quite a force to reckon with in the world of ad land because their platform has so many users on it. So ironically, they're actually playing catch up as it gets to you know being a friend of Madison Avenue and getting close to all the large uh, media agencies and, and holding groups. But it feels a bit perverse to say that Amazon's playing catch up because they're so dominant uh, in every other right. But I think what we're seeing is really you know a very different approach to the marketplace, and and I, and a lot of what's driving this is really the advances in cloud-based computing. And Amazon, through AWS, being so dominant in the cloud spectrum, I think is using the innovation and their scale in the cloud to think about how do they approach advertising uh, and the monetization of data. And we're seeing different strategies from people like Google. And um, and I think the use cases for marketers is really what's driving a lot of this. So, so I think they're, what they're really saying is, can a cloud-based data sharing platform adhere to stricter guidelines, both from a kind of a, a brand safety perspective um, and specifically around consumer privacy. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing is that people like Amazon and, and Google to an extent are saying that if we manage data in our cloud-based environments, we can do so in a safer, 
more brand safe way with less data leakage around the fringes. Uh, and, and a lot of this basically means that we're going to have less pixel-based tracking or third-party cookie-based tracking. And it plays into the hands of the major platforms. And obviously, any marketer would want their brand to be an environment where it's not next to any malicious content um, and do better kind of one-to-one marketing. And I think that is what Amazon is starting to play towards. One-to-one marketing, the world of Amazon, the behemoth brand of the modern business world. How did that brand define itself? Well, it built from humble beginnings in the 1990s and was frequently on the death watch lists around the turn of the century. But it survived and thrived. What about other brands and rebranding? I asked Elle Wolf, who rebranded Path Factory, what she might do differently. I would give us more time. <laughs> I would have made, you know, it's, it's funny. Like we were, I think like nobody knows how to decide that they're going to rebrand. Like it's like you've never done it before. So you don't know how to, how, it's like, are we making this decision? Are we saying we'll move forward? And so I think we were all weirdly like, not trepidatious, but it was like, are like, are we saying yes? Like, what does it mean to say yes? Should we move forward? And I think that this, the, we got off the starting blocks a little slow and that caused us a bit of pain. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, I do think like it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a lot of work to get it done in, in the time frame that we did it. Although I also think that those kind of constraints breed a lot of, you know, creativity and, mm-hmm. and, uh, resourcefulness. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. If I had given us 12 months, like we, maybe we wouldn't have done such a great job. I don't know. Right. But it would have been nice. I'm just like a tiny bit more breathing room. You know, the other thing is I do think, uh, and it goes back to something I said earlier, this is a chance to talk to your market. You, your rebrand is an opportunity to tell the story of why you're rebranding. Now, unless it's for terrible, like, um, you know, unless you've had a, a, an Enron style scandal, you know, if there's something positive to talk about, use it as your platform. I don't see enough brands do that. I, again, I think they go quietly sort of through this process as opposed to like, let's shout it from every possible rooftop and find creative ways to get the message out there. And so I maybe would have even found ways to do more of that. Like, I mean, we tried to get, you know, it's hard to get media attention in, in our category. And so, we didn't get a lot of pickup on it, but I would have liked to get sort of greater amplification even than we got. I do think tying it to a major event, whether that's you're about to announce a round of funding or, you know, some other huge, I mean, we, we re- announced the rebrand in conjunction with a very big expansion of our product that we launched a serious decision. So it gave us a, a platform to tell a really big story, which was nice. And I think you do need to have that. Beyond that, you know, other things I would do differently. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, it's mainly about the time. I mean, you know, anytime you're crunched for time like that, you always kind of go like, oh, did we think about that thing enough? Or did we do, you know, it's just little bits and pieces I, I may have spent a little bit more time on here and there. But no, no major, no major regrets, to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm fully, you know, I think... I said early on in the process, like when we started to, to go through, you know, the, the, you know, exploring the identity and stuff, and we had already decided on the name. I, I woke up one day and I was like, Path Factory, like that's a company I want to work for. Like I can't wait to work for that company. Right. Um, and that was really exciting, right? Like it's just like you couldn't wait to sort of build this, this new thing. So, you know, no, I mean, it was a super positive experience overall. And that's how I view Confessions of a Marketer as we near the 100th episode. A super positive experience. I'd like to thank the guests, 
the people who have helped me get the show up and running twice a week, and most importantly, you, the listeners. Here's to more episodes, and here's to the future. You stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.